June 6, 1944. The world is in the middle of its second war in just over 20 years. Thousands of Allied troops swarmed the beaches of Normandy, France in what would become the largest seaborne invasion in modern history. Codenamed Operation Neptune, the sea invasion of Normandy was only the initial step of the larger Operation Overlord that would liberate France from Nazi occupation before ultimately freeing all of Western Europe. That late spring day would later become known to millions as D-Day. Overlord was a resounding success that helped end the war in Europe, an achievement that can be directly attributed to the victory at Normandy. But prior to D-Day, the Allied forces under the leadership of Supreme Commander Dwight Eisenhower carefully planned the massive sea invasion by running secret training simulations and exercises months in advance of the push across Nazi-controlled Europe. One such exercise would end in utter disaster. I'm your host, Forrest Kelly, and this is 10 Minutes About Exercise Tiger. Before we begin, I would like to dedicate this episode to a man I considered a friend. His name was Herb Simmons, and as a young man, he was at Normandy four days after D-Day. It was one of my greatest honors and pleasures to know him. He passed away in March of 2020 at the age of 97. I thank him and all veterans for their service. In 1944, over the course of two days in late April, the Allied forces gathered on the beaches of England at Slapton Sands to dress rehearse the pivotal Operation Neptune. Known as Exercise Tiger, the practice operation was in direct preparation for the landings at Utah Beach, one of the five beachheads of Normandy along with Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword. The training, however, would prove tragic. By the time the exercise concluded, over 700 servicemen would lose their lives, a total that nearly doubled the 435 men lost at Utah Beach on D-Day. Slapton Sands on the southern English coast was selected for the exercise due to its many similarities to Normandy Beach. Slapton and the neighboring areas of Devonshire County had been ordered to evacuate by the War Cabinet as early as November of 1943 in preparation for Operation Overlord exercises. Though there had been several exercises prior, it is Tiger that is remembered because of a series of avoidable mistakes that led to catastrophe. The training exercise began in earnest on the 22nd of the month. The Allies were practicing amphibious beachhead landings at Slapton, arriving on convoys set sail from ports in Brixham, Plymouth, and Dartmouth. Prior to leaving port, the convoys would fully prepare their ships as though they were going into battle. The aim was to emulate an actual operation as closely as possible. They would simulate the channel crossing by slowly traveling through Lime Bay. In the early morning of the 28th, a convoy of Allied ships, Convoy T-4, was making its way through Lime Bay to Slapton Sands. The convoy was made up of ships out of Brixham and Plymouth. It consisted of nine ships in total, eight LSTs, or a landing ship tank, and one escort, the HMS Azalea. The convoy started off poorly, embarking with the Azalea as its lone support. T-4 was supposed to have a second escort, the HMS Scimitar, 
but prior to leaving dock, it was accidentally hit by an American vessel. Furthering the blunder, there had been a second escort ship in port, but due to communication issues, it would remain at dock. A replacement vessel would later be deployed, but it would be too late to assist the doomed convoy T-4. At approximately 1.30 in the morning, the convoy was traveling quietly through Lime Bay when unbeknownst to its crew, LST-507 was struck several times by torpedoes. The convoy was under attack from German e-boats that were patrolling Lime Bay. This early morning encounter was no mere coincidence. Adolf Hitler, through the use of Directive 51, had instructed much of the German naval fleet to patrol the English Channel and surrounding waters in anticipation for an Allied assault on German-controlled France. Several days prior to the morning of the 28th, German scouts had observed activity around Lime Bay and Slapton Sands. Unsure of the Allies' plans, the Germans kept an eye on their enemy's movements. The first torpedo to hit LST-507 did not explode on impact. Nonetheless, the 507 was engulfed in flames as the E-boats rained machine gun fire down at the unsuspecting vessel. Eugene Exton was a Naval Reserve medical officer on the 507 when it was hit. In a 1994 article, Exton vividly recalled that night. We sailed along in fatal ignorance. General Quarters rudely aroused us at about 1.30. I remember hearing gunfire and saying they had better watch where they were shooting or someone would get hurt. At 2.03, I was stupidly trying to go topside to see what was going on and suddenly, boom. There was a horrendous noise accompanied by the sound of crunching metal and dust everywhere. The lights went out and I was thrust violently in the air to land on the steel deck on my knees, which became very sore immediately thereafter. Now I knew how getting torpedoed felt, but I was lucky. As Exton continues, he describes the situation on the ship as we get a glimpse of his horrific reality. The tank deck was a different matter. As I opened the hatch, I found myself looking into a raging inferno which pushed me back. It was impossible to enter. The screams and cries of those many army troops in there still haunt me. Navy regulations call for dogging the hatches to preserve the integrity of the ship, and that's what I did. Until the fire got so hot we were forced to leave the ship at 2.30, we watched the most spectacular fireworks ever. Gas cans and ammunition exploding and the enormous fire blazing only a few yards away are sights forever etched in my memory. As the 507 was being abandoned, Exton says that only the ship's crew had life jackets. Instead, the army personnel received inflatable belts. However, the soldiers were never instructed on how to use the belts. Exton paints a shocking picture of abandoning the ship as soldiers wearing backpacks with their belts around their chests would hop into the water before quickly flipping upside down leaving their heads submerged underwater. For his part, Exton recalled the belt slowly rising up to his armpits as he sank into the 42 degree water. As the LST slowly sank, the Germans had attacked the other LSTs in the convoy. Soon after the 507 was hit, the E-boat struck LST-531, which sank just six minutes afterwards. While the 507 burned and LST-531 sank, the E-boat struck one more ship, the LST-289, which took extensive damage but remained afloat. As the E-boats would soon flee the scene, the convoy immediately made for the nearest port, 
However, Captain John Doyle of the lead ship, the LST-515, would, against orders, turn back and search for survivors of the 507 and 531. He and his crew saved over 130 men that night from the frigid bay. Eugene Exton was one of those men. I recall only brief moments of hearing motors, of putting a knee on a small boat ramp, and then awakening halfway up a Jacob's Ladder. I was on the only American ship, LST-515, to rescue survivors. This was at dawn, about 6 a.m. I had been in the water over two hours, fully dressed and insulated. As Ekstrom previously mentioned, he was lucky. The 130 men who were saved are overshadowed by the 749 men who died that night, most from hypothermia or drowning. Perhaps this disaster could have, in part, been avoided had it not been for a catastrophic technical error. Convoy T-4 was a mix of American and British ships, causing some confusion as to what radio frequency the convoy was supposed to be on. As a result, when the e-boats were first spotted by onshore gunners, they alerted the British escort, the Azalea. Having assumed the LSTs had heard the same message, the Azalea did not attempt to alert the rest of the convoy. However, the American LSTs were using a different frequency and never received any communications. That said, one of the LSTs did spot the e-boats but assumed they were part of another convoy. As a result of the deadly miscommunications, the Allies would standardize their communication methods so an incident like this would not occur again. Five weeks after Exercise Tiger concluded, the same men on the same vessels involved with the naval operations at Lime Bay would successfully raid Utah Beach at Normandy, paving the way for the overwhelmingly successful Operation Overlord. In the aftermath of the attack at Lime Bay, General Eisenhower threatened all parties involved with court-martial if they spoke to anyone regarding Exercise Tiger. The planned invasion of Normandy was far too integral to their war plans to be thwarted by loose lips. Thus, any reports or acknowledgments of the exercise were buried for a time, and while decades later accusations of a cover-up and of mass graves in South England would be hurled around, the truth of Tiger became public knowledge shortly after D-Day, when the casualty reports for the exercise were released and accounts of Tiger's events would show up in the Stars and Stripes Soldier magazine. War is wrought with dangers. Whether it be a training exercise or a full-scale operation, both can prove to be horrifically tragic. That's why the men lost at Lime Bay and all of World War II shouldn't and won't be forgotten. Thank you for listening. For 10 Minutes About, I've been your host, Forrest Kelly, and that's all I've got to say about Exercise Tiger. <laughs>